This Snap Judgment podcast is brought to you by our friends at Stamps.com. You know, these days, you can get practically anything on demand, just like this show. But did you know you can even get postage on demand at Stamps.com? It's easy. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer or printer. And Stamps.com will give you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you'll need for any letter or package. You'll print the postage directly onto envelopes, labels, even plain paper. And then just hand your mail to your friendly mail carrier. There's no need to go to the post office ever again or even get one of those expensive postage meters. And right now, there's a special offer just for listeners of Snap Judgment. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SNAP. That's Stamps.com. Enter SNAP and happy mailing. Okay, so it was late night in this hotel, right? And I couldn't sleep, so I got to watching a preacher on the late night TV. And this preacher looked dead at me and said I was evil, ridden with sin. And I was like, this man is so right. And then he said, it's time that I made a change. And I thought, How did he know? He shouted that I needed to put everything on the table and start anew. So I emptied my pockets, coins, lint, receipts, and I put it all on the nightstand. And just for a flash, I started having a moment. Something was percolating on the tip of what I already knew. I just had to reach out and grab it, but it hung just a little bit too far out there. It just wouldn't hold still. And maybe that was it, that you couldn't hold still. And all the great books, the great teachers, they were all reformers. They burned, they fought, they destroyed. Moses, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Martin Luther, they all demanded a break with belief before reaching a new level of comprehension. You had to lose before you could gain. And I felt right on the verge of understanding, right on the verge of a new truth. And when the preacher on TV, he said, you know what? I can take you there. I can take you there. I can take you all the way there for the very, very low cost of 1995. Today, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Losing My Religion. Amazing stories about how things fall apart and how we put them all back together. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment.
episode, we're going to get right into it with the story of a real-life Catholic nun straight from New York City. I was very involved with my parish, and I went to a Catholic school. Now I'm Amy, down to sleep. I pray to Lord my it was the mid-1940s in an Irish neighborhood of Brooklyn, and little Eileen O'Toole was an obedient Catholic schoolgirl. And our whole neighborhood was very Catholic. There were a few exceptions, like the family who owned the candy store down the block. There was a Jewish family, two Jewish little boys the same age as I, whose parents owned a candy store. I would go there every day and buy a little bit of candy on the way back to school after lunch. And it was Stan and Isaac. Isaac wrote the most, most science books in the world, and Stan became the editor of Newsday. So she would see Isaac Asimov, the future science fiction author, and his brother Stan, the future editor of Newsday. But in general, Catholics were her world. And there was a heavy weight on her young shoulders to devote her life to God. If she did become a nun, her parents and the whole neighborhood would be proud and they would be set, not only in this life, but forever. I really think that they thought that was their entrance into heaven if they gave one of their children to God. I thought, why not give it a try? Maybe I would like it. So Eileen gave it a try. She decided to become a nun. Her little Brooklyn neighborhood, her mom and dad, they rejoiced. And then the morning came for her to go to the convent. And for the first time, she began to think about herself. And I walked out of my room, and I was trembling. Why am I doing this? How did I get myself into this situation? And all my relatives were there to say goodbye. And the priest who was helping me put me into the car right away. And the car took off, and I was on my way. Walking into the convent, she comforted herself with the hope that it would only be for a short time, that she could leave when she wanted to. When I first entered, I thought that I could just walk out. They held on to us and they watched every move. We were out in the country and there was no way that we could go anywhere. At night, I used to hear the Long Island Railroad horn blow and I tell you, going to bed at night, I'd cry my eyes out. I just wanted to get on that train. And then... Something in her snapped, and after prayers one afternoon, Eileen took off. I said to myself, I'm out of here, and I didn't know that they could see me from the window where they were watching us. I remember holding up my skirt, running up that long, long road, and I nearly made it to the gate, (laughs) but then the car came and got me and told me to come back. Two nuns motioned for her to get in the car and they drove her back up the hill. For four years, Eileen lived under the vigilant eyes of the superior nuns in the stony, regimented mother house. And she was finally assigned to a church in New York City. This could be her chance to escape. I was assigned to Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was really very, very poor and very tough. Eileen was told that she would work directly under the mother superior, Sister Anna Germain. She was nervous. So I went up the stairs, and there is this woman sitting in a a leather lounge chair, which was totally forbidden. You had to sit on a a straight chair all the time. 
and she had the nicest smile and she welcomed me and said, welcome dear, now you make yourself at home. And I was just taken back because usually they were just given orders to you. Go downstairs, do this, do that. She was so nice. So that was my first meeting with Sister Anna Jermaine. And Sister Anna had her own philosophy. Do what you need to do to help the poor. Don't worry about the rules. She said, now tomorrow I want you to go to this house but you're not to tell anybody else that I'm sending you there. Make believe you're going for rolls to the local bakery and bring food to this house or bring money to this house. And I was her feet. And my main job was to walk the streets after teaching and help the poor. It was technically against the rules for Eileen to leave the convent alone. But she was out there every day doing Sister Anna's work. One of my first remembrances is that um, of a, a beautiful um, lady. I think she was a Spanish mother with about four children. She was on welfare, and she told me that uh, the welfare person would come to the house, the man, and he said, unless you give me the favors of your body, I won't give you the welfare check. I just told sister, I said, I have to be there every Wednesday. So when he comes, he sees me standing right next to her. And then he'll give her the check. And that was one of the first things I did. That was definitely against the rule. Breaking the rules became kind of a game. Like when Eileen noticed that the kids in her classroom didn't have the shoes they needed for their confirmation. She knew just where to find the funds she needed. I said to the mothers, don't worry, don't worry, I will buy them for you. I said, I know where the money is from the Sunday collections, and I'm going to run in and grab money for these shoes. So I grabbed a bunch of money, and I said to the kids, follow me like Pied Piper down the avenue. We were all holding hands, and I went into the shoe store, and I said, outfit these children in with shoes and socks. And then I told Sister Anna what I did, and she laughed. She thought that was funny. But I had money left over, so she said, give them a party. You can't put the money back in the basket. Under Sister Anna... Eileen didn't want to run. What an eye-opening. I felt so good about the things that I was doing. But Sister Anna was getting older. One day she fell ill, and she was taken to the hospital, and she never came back to the convent. Eileen was transferred to a wealthy parish in Long Island. And everything was rules and regulations. I remember the superior telling me, you enter the convent to take care of the nuns. You didn't enter the convent to take care of people or the poor. I was so upset, I I didn't know what to do, and all I could think of was get out of the convent. And I went to Montauk. Montauk Point is the farthest end of Long Island. And you climb up the cliffs and you see the ocean, the wild ocean. I had a veil on and, um, you know, my habit, and I climbed up to the top of the cliffs and I said, I'm really not happy. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want this to be my life. And I looked out at the ocean. It was hitting against the point. And out on the horizon, it was calm. And I'll never forget the feeling. I went, oh my gosh, look how calm. God is telling me, that's okay. You'll be calm. You could do it. Everything will be all right. That's the moment I made up my mind. She always thought she might not last in the convent. And now she was sure. She was going to break her vows. Uh, You can't leave the common unless you have a dispensation from your vows. And that's a serious, serious thing. 
to break your vows against God. So what holy nun wants to break her vows against God? Well, then I had to go back and tell people, and that was tough. It wasn't just her vow she was breaking. She was going to let down the whole family, most of all her mother. She went home for a family dinner to break the news and hoped they'd be understanding. My sisters wouldn't tell her. They were afraid my mother would have a heart attack. I said, Mom, I'm really unhappy, and she just froze. She was standing at the sink, and I said, I want to leave the convent. She said, leave this house. I don't want to see you again. That moment was horrific, just terrible, and it went down from there. Her family stopped talking to her. She had nothing that she needed to live on her own. No money, no job, no place to live. Her head was shaved. She had only her nun's clothing. And then help began to appear. If you want to know how God took care of me, I cannot believe it, how it really happened. First of all, I had no clothes. She met an older couple who would take her out for dinner. They loved nuns, and they saw that Eileen was a good person. So she let them in on her hopes of escape. I called them my angels. That older couple, they owned a woman's dress shop. They had clothes in their car as samples. They gave me 12 outfits. Then she was interviewed by Newsday about her charity work. And after the interview, Eileen confessed her plan to the journalist and explained that she still had no job and no money. She goes home and she tells her editor, he was... Stan Asimov, the fella I grew up with. The editor, Stan Asimov, said he knew Eileen. He said, I'm the little Jewish boy who lived across the street from you, and we grew up together. I could not believe it. He promised her a job at Newsday. He said, "Uh, when you leave, come to the personnel sign and the job is waiting. So early one morning when no one was looking, Eileen stepped out of the convent with $80 in her pocket and boarded a bus to New York City. And I was in full, you know, nun regalia. And I got on that bus and I went into, I think it was Grand Central Station, and I went to, I think it was a movie house, and I changed. I took off my nun habit, put on clothes, then I stayed and watched a movie. Eileen took the job at Newsday. Eventually she went back to teaching. She rented a sparsely furnished apartment and got married and had a daughter. She still goes to church, And when the collection basket comes around, she thinks about what Sister Anna would do. I don't always like to give in church, as my husband knows, because I gave my life. But what I do is I'll just give a $20 bill to somebody here or there or wherever. I, I just think that, you know, faith is a great thing in all religions and kindness to others. And that's that's the way I feel in life. Big thanks to Eileen O'Toole for sharing her story at The Snap. You can find out more about Eileen's story and her book at Sister Anna's Feet on our website, snapjudgment.org. Of course, that piece was produced by none other than our own Anna Sussman.
when snap judgment continues, we're going to get thrown out of the country, we're going to get thrown in jail, and we're going to find true love. For real, when snap judgment, the Losing My Religion episode, continues. Stay tuned. I'm giving testimonies to strangers I never met. Hopped on the pulpit and told them how I was truly blessed. Felt like I'm free from all my sins when the service was over. Walked out the church, then got a call that my homie was murdered. And lost my faith again. Judgment, the Losing My Religion episode. Today, we're exploring what it means to challenge your deepest beliefs. Now, a lot of times, your beliefs are passed down from parent to child. But what if your parents, they don't agree? Our next story comes from Ingrid Ricks, the summer she turned 16 years old in a small town in southern Utah. I couldn't stand all the religion that was going on in our house. I felt like I was suffocating. My dad, to escape because he couldn't stand it either, ended up leaving us and he would go out on the road as a traveling salesman for months at a time. And all I knew is that I wanted desperately to have his life and to escape. I made a decision that that summer I was going with my dad. And I just spent that entire summer with him. I was his sales assistant. Every single day, we had to come up with the money that day to survive the next day. We'd spend the night at a Motel 6 and we would get up at like 5.30 in the morning. And then my dad would yell, what's our saying? And we'd both say, the early bird has the worm. And we almost always made the deal. 
and it was before cell phones and it was before any interruptions. We had 12 hours a day, every single day together in the cab of that truck, just my dad and myself. And my dad treated me like a partner. One, two, one, two, three. We're speeding down the road and the sun was out and the morning air was still crisp. It was going to be a hot day and we were belting out on the road again. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. Willie Nelson, and that was our theme song, and we're singing along, and suddenly, my dad looks in the rearview mirror, and he's like, oh, we're getting pulled over. This really tough-looking highway patrolman walks up. He's probably six feet tall, and he's got this ranger hat on and those sunglasses and these big tree trunk arms. My dad rolls down the window, and he just barks into the window. Do you realize how fast you're going? He says, give me your driver's license. So my dad does. My dad is now holding onto the steering wheel, and he never gets nervous, but I can see that, like, his face is sort of turning this whitish color. So my dad, in addition to being a free spirit, is what he termed a creative financer. My dad was wanted for embezzling. He told me that there was a warrant out for his arrest. Before I even know what's happening, the guy is back at a car. He's ripping the door open. He's got his gun out, like two inches from my dad's head, and he's screaming at us to throw up our hands. Put your hands up! He rips my dad out, takes him back to the back, throws him down on the trunk of the car. This highway patrolman he comes over to my side, and I roll down the window. He's now got my dad locked in his car, and, and he says, well, your dad's probably going to be extradited to Texas, and I, I just don't know what we're going to do with you, but tell you what, since you're 16 and you're old enough to drive, why don't you follow behind us, and we'll go to the county jail and figure this out. I shift over into the car, and I remember looking at that clock radio, and it was 5.48, and it was like my world had stopped. So I drive into this little county jail, and I remember, like, by 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, it was already 95 degrees, and I'm just sitting in that car trying to figure out my life. Because up until this day, it was my dad. He was my escape. I didn't know what I was going to do. It was like my escape route was suddenly in real jeopardy. I was petrified. I go into the court, and that same police officer who had arrested him was there. He'd finally taken off his sunglasses. And the judge asks him what it's about. And he says, well, you know, I mean, he needs to be extradited to Texas. And that's the moment I found my voice. No! I yelled as loud as I've ever yelled the word no into that packed courtroom. It was the most guttural, gut-wrenching no you've ever heard. It was like everything that had been building inside me for years came out in that no. I had no choice. It was either speak up or my dad is shipped down to Texas and blocked away and I'm going to foster care until someone can work out to get me back to Utah and then I'm back in another kind of hell. There was no way I was going back to Utah or foster care. And the judge like, didn't even know what to do. Order in the court. Suddenly, all eyes are on me. And so he looks at my dad and he says, who is that? And my dad says, that's my daughter. Now I'm just sobbing, right? And, and so he motions me up to the front. And I walk up. The judge looks back at this arresting officer. And he says, can you please tell me what's going on here? And when the story comes out and they find out that I'd been with my dad, 
and that they wouldn't even let me wait inside the county jail, and that I'd been sitting in this hot car all day. And the judge looked over at that arresting officer and he said, how would you like your daughter to be treated like this? And then he looked back at my dad and he said, do you realize how lucky you are to have a daughter who loves you this much? My dad said, yes, we do. And the judge looked at us both, waited another minute, and he said, I'm letting you out on fugitive bond. On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. Big thanks to Ingrid Ricks for sharing her story with the snap. Now, Ingrid, if they ever lock me up, I hope you're there to scream me out as well, and I hope that you and your dad can get on the road again from time to time. That piece was produced by Jamala Henderson and Julia DeWitt, with sound design by Renzo Goria. our soul searching when we're at rock bottom. All the big questions, they loom larger when we're all by ourselves. Our next story from Stephanie Fu, it takes place in South Africa, where at 16 years old, Robert V. Taylor found himself trapped inside his own body. This is the sound of a hospital room. Do you hear that? This is what Robert V. Taylor heard during much of his teen years as he lay in a hospital bed, trapped in a metal body cast. I was 16. My uh, spine had grown out of place. There was scoliosis. I woke up one night. I'd fallen out of bed. I was on the floor. I was crying. I was terrified. I didn't know if I damaged my back. And a nurse came and held my hand. I started to tell her about how lonely it was in the hospital. One of Robert's few visitors, however, was the chaplain from his school. He came to talk with him a while and left him with a book called Not N-A-U-G-H-T, Not For Your Comfort, by a man named Trevor Huddleston. It was the first book to be published that challenged apartheid. Trevor Huddleston was an Anglican priest. He talked about how black South Africans were terrorized by roving gangs how the government did nothing to aid their health and safety concerns, and how the government staged the ethnic cleansing and segregation of a suburb in Johannesburg. The white race should be preserved. And as Robert read this, his world was rocked. Believe it or not, Robert had no idea that black South Africans were oppressed. He didn't even really know what racism was. As a white person, the only people of color that I knew were those who worked in our home. Reading Huddleston's book was a complete eye-opener to me. It made me say, my gosh, this is not the country that I thought I'd grown up in. Uh, I, in fact, read the book three or four times during that hospitalization. He identified with that sense of entrapment. Except Robert was able to get out of his body cast. After many months, he was freed. But that didn't mean he was cured. 
his many surgeries and hospitalizations still left him limping. I was losing sensation from my waist down and was stumbling when I stood up because I couldn't feel the ground. I was also losing sensation in my hands. But at least he was back amongst other humans. He found a special comfort at the Thursday night Bible study group at the home of the Archbishop of Cape Town. He enjoyed the companionship of his peers and the worship. And so he went every week, even though to do so meant hiding a deep secret. Robert was gay, and the Archbishop did not like gay people. He did witch hunts in the seminary of any student who was believed to be gay. And after one of the Thursday night gatherings, his chaplain came over to me and said, we'd like to pray with you. And so my first thought was, oh my gosh, they're going to try to exorcise me. And as we went into a side chapel, they had me kneel. And the next thing that I knew was that they had their hands pressing down on my head. And I remember this sense of, of great weight on my head and my shoulders and a warm sensation through my body. And after they had finished, they put their hands under my arms and lifted me up. And the Archbishop said, Robert, your body is being healed. And then he said, your body will not enclose you again. Robert wasn't really sure if he believed in healing through prayer, but miraculously, he started to feel better. The loss of feeling disappeared. I was able to quite literally stand tall. His doctors x-rayed his spine and declared him completely healed. Something had happened in that moment in which I had been prayed for. And so at one of those Thursday night gatherings, I told the story to the group. And afterwards, a couple by the name of George and Mary came up to me and they said, we'd really like you to come to our community and talk about what you've experienced. And it was one of those moments that I think we've all had where you say yes to someone and then you think, oh my gosh, what have I just agreed to? Because, you see, George and Mary were black. I was being invited to a black community. And I immediately thought, I have nothing to say except, you know, these very simple words. And, and then I was filled with panic. Because of Huddleston's book, Robert knew that this was a group of people who had every reason to hate him. Whites had murdered and shunned black South Africans. And he was supposed to go lecture to them about the petty hardships of his life? There I was on the Sunday morning. I walked into the church and realized that I was the only white person. I was experiencing being a minority for the first time. And I remember as I headed up to the pulpit that I was worrying about whether the zit on my chin would be visible to people. And I spoke about my experience of healing and what it had done for me. And it was met with such a generous response of applause. After his speech, members of the community invited him to stay the weekend with them. They said, You know, we just want to get to know you as Robert, and we want you to know us as the individuals that we are. I never had a sense of being unaccepted, ever. Out of that emerged some friendships. As Robert became closer to his new friends, he felt like he needed to do something to help the black community. The message that I often heard was, you need to work within the white community to change it, and we need to do the work we need to do in the black community. So Robert went straight home to do just that. He started with his own family over the dinner table. He told them about the atrocities of apartheid. He asked them what to do. And I was greeted with comments like, you're treading on dangerous ground. 
You should be quiet, or, you know, Robert, there's never smoke without fire. The government must know what it's doing. Robert had thought that God had simply blessed him with the ability to stand tall. But he knew now that he was going to have to work for that ability. Standing tall meant using and exercising my voice in working for the end of apartheid. So when Robert went off to college, he had two goals in mind. The first was to study the Bible and become an ordained priest. And the second was to spread the word about racial injustice. He wanted to be like his hero, Desmond Tutu, who was a bishop and an activist. So he organized debates about race, and he hoped to change things in his college by running for student body president. And became very involved in protests. Steve Biko, a prominent black South African leader, was murdered while in police custody, and I actually went to his funeral. That's when Desmond Tutu began speaking to the mourners. And imploring this grieving, angry, mourning crowd to be partners in love and to remember that they are loved. And I was haunted by his words because I believed in in my heart of hearts that we're all profoundly loved for who we are. But I wasn't sure that I believed that for myself. And that was a terrifying moment. Robert was afraid that being gay meant that he would never be loved. Robert was still in the closet and alone in his lie. But even if he couldn't be who he was, it made him feel better to fight for the rights of black South Africans to be accepted for who they were. But even that was threatened when he got a call from the Cardinal of Cape Town. He called me to say, Robert, I'm calling on behalf of the Archbishop the same man who'd prayed for my healing. He is very disappointed in you that you're involved in politics. He wants you to withdraw from the election immediately if you wish to continue to be a candidate for ordination. Robert had to choose between becoming an activist and becoming a priest, which wasn't a choice he felt he could make. He visited the archbishop and appealed to him. I challenged him on that, and he was not happy with it. He said to me, Robert, all you need to do is to pray and everything will be okay. I said, Your Grace, but prayer isn't in isolation. It leads to something. And he looked at me and he said, Robert, you're sounding like that communist Desmond Tutu. And in that moment, I felt like there was a tearing of a veil in the room. Here was this man who had played such a role in my healing. And there he was, uttering these incredibly harsh words about a man who was an iconic hero of mine. And I thought, how is it that these things can coexist? It wasn't just the church that was disappointed in his actions. The government wasn't happy either. I certainly came to the attention of the secret police. Well, it was, it was terrifying. I was being followed. You didn't know who you could trust. To make matters worse, the government required that all white male South Africans had to serve in the military. I could not support the military in any way, shape, or form. And the only alternative to serving in the military was life in prison. Robert was scared and desperate. At this point, he was working with colleagues of Desmond Tutu, and so he sent word that he wanted to meet with his hero in a last attempt to get his advice before he was imprisoned for life. To his surprise, Desmond Tutu actually invited him to his office. 
he was very informal and he said, oh, I've had a long day and do you mind if I just rest on the couch? And he said to me, so Robert, tell me about you, not what you've done, but who you are. And it was this remarkable question. What came out of Robert was the story of his spine. He talked about being alone in the hospital and said that Huddleston had kept him company and inspired him throughout that time. And when I got to the point of telling that to Desmond Tutu, he burst out laughing. It took him a while to settle down, and I, of course, wondered what on earth I'd said. He said, Robert, when I was a teenager, I had tuberculosis, and I was hospitalized for long periods of time, just like you were, and I was lonely and afraid. Trevor Huddleston was my pastor. And he came to visit me in the hospital, and he read stories to me and inspired me to do what I do now. And I was blown away by that. On that sort of common ground, Tutu said to me with incredible wisdom, there will be a time in South Africa when young white men like you will need to go to jail. But this is not that time. I will get you out. I will help you buy the ticket for New York. Wait for my call. And literally nine days later, I was on a plane to New York. In New York, Robert was safe, and he saw his dreams come true. He was allowed in the seminary once again and became a priest. Ten years later, apartheid ended in South Africa. The only thing was, he was still closeted. As a priest, he was worried that coming out would mean losing his job, friends, and congregation. Many advised him against it. You're going to lose lots of members, and and you might tear this place apart. And all I could think about was, boy, those voices are not much different from the voices of my family who said, you better be careful. And living with an institution that said, you know, gay people are less than, than fully human, that was really the moral equivalent of apartheid. So Robert decided to stand tall again. He came out as gay. And instead of hatred and abandonment, he was met with overwhelming love. Uh, A few people did leave, but, but many, many more came to join. And in 1999, I was elected to be the dean of the cathedral in Seattle, and, and at that moment became the highest ranking openly gay clergy person at the time. Robert had found the courage to stand for so many in his life, but when he finally stood for himself, he truly found that he was no longer alone. I believe that we're each invited to stand tall and to break through our enclosures because when we do that, we develop love toward ourselves and we develop compassion. Snap Judgment wants to extend a great big thank you to Robert V. Taylor, for sharing his story with Snap. We're going to have a link to his book, A New Way to Be Human, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Snap Judgment, the Losing My Religion episode, will continue in just a moment.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and we are deep into the Losing My Religion episode. And I wanted to tell you a story of my very own from some time ago. I stood right next to the railing looking down at all the rushing water trying to use the roar of the Niagara Falls to tune out my father's lecture. Pops was in rare form. Boy, you're hard-headed. And it's time you learn to understand obedience to the Lord. I just stared at all that water and waited. Every year, we had a big church gathering. And before each and every one, I got the obedience lecture. 16 years old, I knew that if I just endured a few more moments, I was going to be free. This was the one time that we could actually hide. Force of numbers, there were just too many youngsters for the cultish clan of deacons and preachers and apostles and busybodies to be up in everybody's business. And my father knew this. You listen to me, boy? Yes, sir. And don't be messing with none of them girls, neither. Right. What did he think I was there for? I walked away with a quickness. I already had my target locked. She was from upstate New York. Fine. Her name was Becca. And I said, hey, Becca, let me show you around. Knowing good and well, I'd never been there before. All right. We ate some Niagara Falls fudge. We went to Ripley's, believe it or not. Then the Wax Museum. And in front of Waxy Dolly Parton, I reached out my hand for hers. And she held it. I knew the good Lord loved me. We went next door to a haunted house. I hate haunted houses. I just want to go somewhere where I could hold her hand. Around a dark bend, right past the Frankenstein's monster. She said she wanted to tell me a secret. I bent down and we kissed for like 30 seconds or two hours. And when we walked out of the haunted house into the bright sunshine, her mother was there, waiting and screaming and spitting as she yanked back his hand hard out of mine and she said that I was a seducer, breaking God's law, one race fraternizing with another. And she pushed Becca into a car and they drove off. Yeah, that separation of races thing was just another one of the rules of my church. I stood there. Numb, invisible no more, church brethren staring, pointing, whispering to each other, you should have seen what happened. The next thing I remember is getting into my parents' station wagon, heading back to Michigan, when a girl who wasn't Becca pressed a note into my hand, and she whispered in my ear, you know who this is from, and she walked away. I breathed it in, and it smelled like Becca did. I couldn't open it. I couldn't open it. I had to open it. And when I opened it, in flowing cursive script, she'd written everything I wanted to hear. Everything I needed to know. That we would write to each other. That nothing could ever keep us apart. 
that her mother was caught up in this craziness and she was so sorry, but that that was not how it had to be. We were almost old enough to do whatever we wanted and we would be together forever soon. And she told me not to write to her house, but to write to her friend who had passed the letters on. And I did. For a while, I wrote every day. Then being 16, I wrote every week, then every month. But then, one night, I got a phone call. It was Becca. She sounded tiny and squeezed and scared. And she said, I just can't stay here anymore. I can't. It's too much. Will you help me? Can I come stay with you? Can she come stay with me? Of course, I'd do anything, but the idea of this white girl coming to stay with my black family was beyond the imagining of our community. There was just no way that was gonna happen. But I had to help her, I had to. I put the phone down on my dresser and started the long march upstairs. Every step I took toward my parents' room, I knew with ever greater certainty that the volcano was about to blow. I knocked on their bedroom door. My father sat at his desk reading his Bible. He looked at me. I took a deep breath. Then I just said it. Pops, I need some help. I've got a girlfriend that lives on the other side of the country and she's got to get away from where she is right now. She's in the church. She might be white. Can she come here? I braced myself for the explosion. Where is she? She's at a bus station in Buffalo. He reached over to his dresser and handed me his wallet. My credit card is in there. Get her a ticket to come here. And I I just stood there wondering who was this person? Anything else? No, sir. Close the door on your way out. Thank you. A day later, I waited in our just-washed station wagon for Becca to arrive at the Grand Rapids, Michigan Greyhound Terminal. I saw her through the bus window, looking tired, till she looked out and we locked eyes and she became beautiful again. It had been almost a year and we'd only really spent one day together then. She jumped off the bus and hugged me. I knew it. She said, I knew we were going to be together. I grabbed her backpack and she was like, I'm real sorry. You might be in a bit of trouble. What's up? My mom's went through my stuff and found some of our letters. She's telling the police I'm kidnapped by Negroes. <laughs> we laughed, even though it wasn't funny. And I drove her to my place where she met my mother and my father and my brothers and my sister for the first time. You're so pretty, my sister said. And Becca smiled and relaxed. And you could tell she hadn't relaxed for a long, long time. And I felt like I just wanted to keep her safe. We were sitting eating dinner when there was a knock on the door. My father went to open it and it was our pastor. He was knotting his tie as the door opened. Blonde, gray hair, kind of askew, and he started in on my father. Well, Bill, I heard what's going on. It's a real situation, Bill. It's a situation we're going to have to work on together. I just want to know you're going to be in church tomorrow. And my father said it nice and slow so everybody could hear. We're all going to be in the church tomorrow. 
The next day, my family sat right in the center of service with Becca in the middle, next to me. Pastor strode to the podium and started in on a sermon about the sin of mating with the wrong kind of person. I had never hated this pastor before, but I started to hate him then. And after services, my father told me the pastor and some of the deacons wanted to meet with us. Of course they did. I followed him to the little room in the back of the church. Pastor sat there with two of his minions, and he didn't waste any time. Until you are instructed otherwise, this girl will be staying at the home of a white family. Deacon Vanderjack will make the arrangements. I started to say something, but my father put his hand on my shoulder. Understand this here. As my son asked me to open our home, it will remain open to this girl for as long as she wishes to stay there. The pastor looked shocked. Are you disrespecting my authority in the Lord Jesus Christ? If the shoe fits, pastor, wear it. We're leaving now. Walking away from the little office, I was like, Pops, you know you're kicked out of the church, right? You know, you know that church that our family has dedicated our lives to? Boy, what did I always tell you to do what the pastor said do? No, 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 no. To do what Jesus said do. And you know who Jesus listened to, right? His father. So you listen to your father. And he stopped walking. And remember this, son. Never, ever make a young girl believe you are going to do something that you are not going to do. I couldn't look back at him when he said it. I could barely breathe. The next day, when Becca asked me if I loved her, I didn't lie. I don't know. We both cried after I said it. When she said she wanted to leave right now to go stay with her sister, I couldn't believe it wasn't the church, her parents, my parents, that was keeping us apart. It was me. I stood watching her not look back at me as the Greyhound bus pulled away, wishing I still believed in something, anything, enough to make the pain somebody else's fault. What's a king to a guy? What's a guy to a non-believer who don't believe in? Yes, you know that this is the end of today's installment, but Snap Nation awaits. Full episodes, movies, pictures, songs, all available at snapjudgment.org. Facebook, give me some love. I'll give you some love right back. Twitter, snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. Nothing happens without the merry monks of Mad Monkey Manor. Give it up for Friar Tuck himself, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, the Reverend MC, Pat Masini Miller, Stephanie, I don't believe Foo, Anna, I do believe Sussman, 
Julia. Believe what? The wit. Jamie DeWolf insists that we believe in him. Renzo Gorio believes in beats, while Will Urbina believes deeply in hamburgers. Extra mayo, hold the pickle, please bow your heads. Have you ever been brought to your lowest point only to have someone tell you, sorry, you're going to have to stop crying now because they're going to be closing down the restaurant in five minutes. Don't get mad, friends. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting trying to move things along. That floor is not going to mop itself. Many thanks to the CPB and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, calling the public down to be baptized in the cold, clear waters of public media whether they like it or not, prx.org. And now, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could step into the nearest church, slip money from the offering plate into your own pocket, run down the street, bet it all on the ponies, win big, bring it back to the church from whence it was stolen, and when they refuse your evil and ill-gotten gains, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. Let me sing my song.